Um, as we go into the book of Psalms, Psalm, and we're going to be in the 51st Psalm. Now listen, I know when I say Psalms 51, I'm not saying it right, all right? It's a book of Psalms. Uh, the Psalms, the book of Psalms, is kind of like um, the original hymn book. You know, anything written after like Psalm 151 or whatever is new music in church world. So uh, it didn't start with like uh, the hymns. It didn't start with, um, uh, I don't know, come just as you are. It didn't start there. It started like thousands of years before that. And so anything we've ever sang probably in our life, unless you've sang a psalm, is a brand new song. And the psalms tell us to make new songs unto the Lord. But the book of Psalms is kind of the original church hymn book. Uh, It was a book designed to help unite people around the idea of who God is, and it was orchestrated in a way, literally orchestrated in a way, that uh, they would be sung when gathering together uh, to remind, in, in groups of Psalms, to remind God's people of certain events. In fact, um, at the end, uh, during the Lord's Supper, in Matthew's account, Matthew writes that after they had taken the meal, they all sung a psalm, and then they got up and went out. The book of Psalms is uniquely, uh, uh, has unique categories in it, and one of them that is the the largest in the book of Psalms uh, are those called Psalms of Lament. Now, Psalms of Lament are designed to cry out to God about their current situation, what's going on, the negative current situation through suffering or tragedy or misunderstanding or whatever. And it's the attempt to cry out to God in that situation to bridge the gap between what's going on in my life and the truth about God's goodness that I know. If you've ever found yourself in a place where you're saying, I know that God is good, but this doesn't feel good, what do I do? Psalms of lament are designed to help you process that it's okay to tell God that this does not feel okay. Most psalms of lament don't end with an answer. In fact, Psalm 51 doesn't end with an answer from God. It's just simply King David crying out because he has been found in sin. And in his sin, he begins to cry out to God that God would do something with him in this sin. Now, Psalm 51 has a very unique setting, and we don't always know the setting of psalms when we're reading them. But today, what we're going to look at, and for the next two weeks after this, What we're going to look at for these three weeks is what it means to confess sin. Now, earlier I said that there's been all sorts of faith, that there are all sorts of faith backgrounds here when it came to the idea of baptism. And likely your idea of baptism and your idea of confession are tied together in the faith background that you were raised with. When I say confession, I don't mean going to somebody. Uh, telling them your sins that you can think of or that you feel guilty about, them telling you that if you do something, you are thus forgiven, you going and doing that and thus being or feeling forgiven, and them declaring you forgiven. I I don't mean that when it comes to confession. I I literally mean telling the Lord how you have sinned. That's what I mean. 
And when it comes to confession of sin, it feels like this could be such a negative sermon series. But I want you to know that as followers of Christ, you do not have to have a negative view of confession. If you were raised in a faith background where confession is a guilt-ridden thing, where if you have to do or do not do what you're told to do, you did not properly confess or would not be forgiven if you didn't do it with a good heart or whatever, I want you to know the gospel is going to free us from that. We don't have to be there because of Jesus. But that's not what I'm talking about. As a follower of Christ, we have a positive aspect of confession, that we have a God in heaven who not only knows your sin, but knows your sin even greater than you know your own sin, and has created a pathway for you to have forgiveness, although you do not earn or do not deserve the forgiveness of God. We have the good news, the gospel of confession. And that the beautiful reality is that the gospel is not just how you get into salvation in Christ. It is a pathway because of the gospel in the Christian life of continued confession of sin. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, uh, the mature Christian is continually uh, in, uh, in tune. Okay, I'm, I'm, uh, this is about what he said. I'm paraphrasing, right? Is continually in tune with the inner cesspool of sin in their life. Ask any mature follower of Christ in here, and when I say mature, I mean someone who's close to Jesus, and you look at them, and being with them is being like Jesus, and they will gladly tell you, oh, I don't sin as much as I used to, but boy, I sin, and it is deeper than I ever even knew. When I was stationed in Southern California, I uh, had the privilege of being a member at a guy named John MacArthur's church. If you don't know who that is, it doesn't matter. Um, He would tell you it doesn't matter either. Uh, but I was stationed out there, and my mom had got me a Bible, and I, I wasn't going to church at the time. And she said, you should go to church. And I, she told me about this church, and she, I, I didn't know who this guy was either. And, um, uh, and she, I said, well, where did I start? She said, I don't know, John MacArthur's church is out there or whatever. And so um, I said, well, who's that? And she said, well, it's the guy that wrote the, the commentary at the bottom of your Bible. And um, I said, oh, okay, you know, I like his commentary. I'm sure he's a good guy. Turns out he's like, in, in modern theologian world, he's kind of like a big deal. And so I went to his church, this massive church, like 12,000 people, and um, he deeply loves Jesus, incredibly knowledgeable. He would hold um, open Q&As with his entire church once a month. You could just ask him anything. It was weird. Uh, You always had that person who's like, uh, in, you know, um, Ezra chapter 4, verse 4, it says, oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. He just like has one of those brilliant, weird minds. And um, one time... Uh, this, uh, t- I'm assuming 20-something-year-old person uh, guy got up and said, like, um, Pastor, um, I just, like, man, I'm battling sin. And um, it's hard. Like, and it seems like, it seems like you don't sin. Um, and so, like, how, when will the battle be over? And he said, uh, at that time, was in uh, the pastor of that church for about 40 years. And I don't know, he's been there much longer now because this was in 2005. He said, the truth is, um, it's true. I don't sin as much as I used to. Like, that's the mark of a mature follower of Christ. The longer you follow Christ, the, the less you should sin, right? 
It's kind of like being married. The longer you're married, the better you're at it. And so the longer you follow Christ, of course, I, I do sin less. But when I do, it is so much deeper and so much graver because I now not only know the consequences, but I know better. And we, like we, we all struggle with sin, but there's this beautiful reality now as a follower of Christ, this freeing reality now as a follower of Christ, that God has created a mechanism for me to make my sin known, or rather for me to let him know that I know that I am in sin, because he already does. When I was 16 years old, um, I, I, I've said this a lot, I, I, didn't, I did not go to high school very well, and only because I didn't go often. And so, um, so when I did go, I just wasn't a good participant, because I never really knew what was going on, because, you know, I didn't go. Uh, I was in biology class, and uh, Mrs. B was talking about, you know, cells and osmosis or whatever, and I, I thought maybe I'd learn through osmosis. I don't know. I just made that up. But um, so I was sitting there, and I did what, um, what most kids who are bored in a class do. Um, I put my hands down on my desk, and then I slunched over on my elbows, and then I put my hands up like this, and then I opened my book to the page, and I went like this, and then I just stayed there in deep, deep thought. Well, out of nowhere, uh, Miss B just said, Tim, Tim, wake up. And I said, well, I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't sleeping. She said, be quiet. I've, I know you were sleeping. I said, Miss B, I was not sleeping. I was, I was paying attention. Your, you know, your, your book's on the wrong page. No, I, I know. It's, I, had, I was trying to read ahead. It's behind. I was trying to catch up, you know, just like <laughs> going back and forth. And because um, I may not have gone to school very much, but I could talk. And so, um, so she said, Tim, I know you were sleeping. Like, just... You're just, I know you're sleeping. She said, well, like, I've been teaching for like 30 years. Like, I know what a sleeping kid looks like. Well, you know, maybe I'm doing it different. And we all think the same thing. We're going to get away with it, right? We, literally, teachers have been watching kids sleep like that their entire time. Talk to any school teacher. They're not like, oh, I found a new way that a child would sleep today, right? Like, and if they do, it goes on Facebook or Instagram. And like, it's, they know, or Pinterest or whatever. And so like, they know. And so I said, well, how did you, how did you know... I was sleeping, you know, you couldn't see. She said, well, the, the drool spot on your desk. <laughs> man, I did not see that. So I'm like wiping it with my sleep. <laughs> not only was I asleep, but I was like deeply asleep, drooling. And here's, here's the reason why I tell you that. We all know that teachers are way better at knowing exactly what's going on in the life of that kid who's sleeping in their class than the kid ever even knows because they're only 14 or 15 or 16 years old. And that teacher has been watching kids sleep in their class longer than that child has been alive times two, right? Like, you, you, you know you're way better at knowing whether or not your dog has done something wrong than they are at hiding it. You know what I'm talking about. You just look, they come around the corner with that look, and you go, what'd you do, right? Or if you have kids, you, you know when your kid did something wrong. Like when they get older, they get better at hiding it, or there's distance and not as much communication. But especially when they're little, and either they are making a noise that shouldn't be made, or they're making no noise. <laughs> and you go, there's just something wrong. Or I used to always wonder why my mom knew that something was happening while it was happening without even looking, and it's because she knows me, right? Like, I don't even have to look at my son, and I can say, 
don't touch the oven. I'm just doing my thing. Tolson, don't. If you touch the oven, you're going to have consequences. Whatever you do in your house, we have particular consequences. You're going to have some consequences. To, and I'm looking over, and I just, I don't even have to look. I know my son. In the same way, God knows your sin. And he is way better at knowing your sin than you are of knowing your sin. And on top of that, is way better at exposing your sin than you are at hiding your sin. I promise you cannot hide your sin. And this sermon, like this sermon series isn't designed to pour kerosene on, on a sin that just is like burning you up right now. But rather, this sermon series is designed to say like, yes, you have sin. God knows you have sin. So what do we do with it? In fact, the path to being a follower of Christ came, began with confession. You, at some point in your life, realized that you did not meet the standard of God. That God had set forward a perfect, holy standard and that you had failed if you're a follower of Christ. You came to the point where you realize I'm not meeting God's perfect standard and I'm in deep debt to him because of my sin. In fact, you're not just in deep debt. The Bible describes you as ungodly, but then the gospel came. To the one who does not work, you couldn't do anything about it, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accredited as righteousness. Romans 4, verse 5. Or that you were not just in debt to God, you were literally dead in your sin. Goodness gracious, no wonder you're a sin. You didn't, you didn't like, you weren't just drowning and couldn't find your way. You were dead in your sin. But God, the Bible describes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, who's rich in mercy... Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive together in Christ. Like you weren't just in debt to him in your sin. You were an enemy of God. Colossians chapter 2 verse 20 says, In you being hostile in mind, who were once alienated, doing evil deeds, he's now reconciled in his body in order to present you as holy and blameless and beyond reproach. You see, the beginning of your salvation came when you realized, I am dead because of my sin. I am an enemy of God. I owe him and I will never be able to work my way to pay it off because it doesn't even work like that. And in that moment, you said, God, I am a sinner. And he responds, good, because I'm a savior of those who are sinners. That's how you began as a follower of Christ. Man, but so often, and I'm guilty of this even in my own life, the last time I truly confessed my sin was when I came to faith in Christ. Because in an effort to help soothe our own souls or sometimes to justify our spiritual walk that we just know is limping along. Like we know something is wrong. We know we have sin. And out of whatever reason, we just don't do anything about it. We forget that confession is this beautiful thing where before God, we can tell him we're sinners. He already knows what you're going through. He already knows what you're doing or not doing. 
And in that process, find forgiveness and healing and strength. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We know that for salvation. But then 1 John chapter 1, John writes and he says to believers, if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So what in the world keeps us from confessing our sin? Maybe when it comes to this reality, and hopefully over the next few weeks, God will deliver some of us from these things. Maybe it's just straight up out of fear that you would have to come to grips with something you've been ignoring for a long time. And the reality, the thing under the thing, is that you are a sinner with that. We spend lots of time fixing the behavior, but the behavior is what causes the behavior. Uh, maybe um, there's, there's deep shame associated with coming to grips that, of, of confessing that something you are doing or not doing is sin. And maybe that shame is somewhat rightly placed. That you're afraid or perhaps have surrounded or are surrounded by those who, if they knew you were a sinner or a sinner in that way, they would shame you. Or maybe your shame is driven by, uh, or maybe if you, were, if you were to confess your sin, you know there would be shame or you think there would be shame because you would think that if I were to tell God this, he just, man, I would just, he would make me feel so bad about myself. Or maybe, honestly, there's somewhat of a spiritual apathy. That instead of dealing with your sin, which is exactly what God does through Jesus Christ, aren't you glad he didn't beat around the bush about your sin? But rather, he hit it head on, conquering it on the cross. But rather, so instead of us seeing our sin and going like, man, i got to get aggressive about it, we, we, are, we are passive on it. We forget Jesus' words like if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. If your right hand causes you to sin, pluck it out. Like it's way better to do that than to be in hell, Jesus said. And so like this, this idea of sin is massive and we just, I don't know, don't deal with it, right? We continue to ignore it and suppress it or we're just lazy about it, knowing all the while that we have a spiritually lazy life and that is not what God has for you in Christ. So what in the world do we do about our sin? We confess it. We do not deny it. We confess our sin, and it is a beautiful thing. In fact, the very context of Psalm 51 is a response in David's heart in 2 Samuel 11 and 12 where David has been called out for a pretty, we would all agree, perverse sin. 
In 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, chapters 11 and 12 in the Old Testament, you've heard the story before, perhaps, about David and Bathsheba. And if not, you're maybe new to church world, it goes something like this. David was king of Israel. He was chosen by God through the prophet Samuel to rule God's people. He was God's choice king. He wasn't like Saul's predecessor that everybody else wanted. He is the person that God himself chose to rule. He's described as a man after God's own heart. One day, King David, while the rest of the kings had gone out to war in the spring, it was somewhat of a hot day, I guess, and so he went to the top of his roof to cool off, and he looked down and he saw Bathsheba bathing. Now, he didn't know it was Bathsheba at the time, the the first moment he saw her. But he went and asked his servants and said, Hey, there's a beautiful woman bathing, and I, as the king, want to use my power for her to come and sleep with me. His servants responded, Whoa, that's the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, one of the people that's fighting for you. In other words, um, his servants were like, David, she's off limits, bro. She's already married. She's the daughter of someone who serves you. She's the wife of someone who serves you. And he thought to himself, I'll have her anyways. And so he sleeps with her, kind of sends her away in disgrace. And then she sends a messenger back saying, hey, David, um, I'm pregnant. Now, in that process, without getting all graphic, you know that that result doesn't just happen overnight. That David sleeps with Bathsheba, and then sometime, perhaps a couple of months later, most likely, she realizes, I'm pregnant, right? I'm pregnant. Just ask someone next to you, they'll explain. I'm pregnant, right? And so he finds out she's pregnant, and instead of covering, uh, instead of revealing this thing, here's what he does. He calls for his, he calls for Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, back from the battle and begins to wine and dine him and uses his position literally to get him drunk. And then in his drunken stupor, he says, oh, Uriah, you've been at battle for a while. Why don't you go sleep with your wife? Now do the math. I mean, you can just figure out and Uriah would know when the baby did the math, like, hold on, wait, I've been gone for six months and I have a baby. That's not how it works, right? It was a stupid plan. Nonetheless, he goes out and he instead of he sends Uriah to his house and instead of going back to his wife, he sleeps on the steps and he says, it's not fair for me. My men are out fighting and I'm not going to go back home uh, because that's just not fair. So then King David a second time gets him drunk and says, hey, uh, you should go do this. And he just refuses to do it. And so David thinks I have quite a situation here. I have a wife who, of one of my servants who I have gotten pregnant, and Uriah's not fallen for this, so what do I do? He just gets him killed. He sends out to the front lines a letter in his own hand <laughs> and hands it and says, hey, just have this guy killed. And so he has him killed. He thinks all is well and all is done until the prophet Samuel shows up. And the prophet Samuel says, oh, buddy, God knows your sin. Now, y'all just got to read it because it's really good. It's one of those like where he gets really angry and then it's like, bam, prophet, right hook. You know, just sees it like out of nowhere, Samuel comes. 
But in this process, David is now confronted with his sin. He's confronted with the consequences of his sin. And he finally cries out to God because of his sin. That's where Psalm 51 comes from. And in Psalm 51, here's what we're going to learn today. By the way, that was all the introduction, so I have a quick sermon now, I promise. In Psalm 51 today, here's what we're going to learn. We're going to learn that salvation without confession is hallucination. Like, in other words, David was going about his life as if him, in, as a person of God, his sin did not matter. And what prof, the prophet Samuel does, and what, or not Samuel, I said Samuel, it's Nathan, y'all. Don't write down Samuel. It was the prophet Nathan in the book of Samuel. What, what the prophet Nathan does is he comes and shatters this hallucination that you're okay in your sin. You have not confessed it to God. Now, you as a follower of Christ, you need to know that in salvation, there is confession that begins your walk with Christ and, and confession as a continued part of your walk with Christ. If you have a view of salvation that's different than that, you're just making stuff up about Christianity. You can't read the Bible and come to the conclusion, as a follower of Christ, I should not confess my sin. You can't read the Bible and come to the conclusion that in order to be a follower of Christ, I, have to, I, I don't need to confess my sin. It doesn't even work like that. Salvation without confession is hallucination. You're just making stuff up, like purple dragons and all that probably exists at some point, but you get my point, right? <laughs> but here's the beautiful, beautiful reality. That salvation with confession is sanctification. That this is a beautiful tool that God has designed for you to be more and more and more like Jesus. For you to be how God has made you and not how you are apart from Christ. And we can say this in, because of Psalm 51. In fact, what Psalm 51 is going to do now is begin to describe, now is the beginning of the sermon, is now begin to describe why for a Christian confession is a beautiful thing. Look at Psalm 51, beginning in verse 1, and let's see what God's Word says together. David cries out, Have mercy on me, O God. Okay, here we go, point number one. We confess our sin as Christians because God can be and is merciful. Now, mercy is a word maybe uh, you aren't familiar with or you have a weird image in your mind based on misuses of it. And it just basically means this. God can, does not have to give you what you deserve. That's mercy. When you don't give someone something that they deserve. And so David appeals to God's mercy. And then look at the second half of verse 1, or rather the second quarter of verse 1. According to your steadfast love. David cries out, have mercy on me because you have a steadfast, never-ending, never-failing, always-and-forever love 
for me. Based on your love, would you not give me what I deserve? Now, this is a two-edged sword because this means that David deserves something. That David deserves, that the Bible tells us we all deserve in our sin, death. The wages of sin, Scripture promises, is death. That like if you're in here, this is, a hard, this is the hard, sharp edge of the word of God that cuts you down for those who do not believe in Jesus. That God can be merciful because God's wrath is against sin. And God's wrath never loses. The consequences of sin is death. But the beautiful side of mercy is this. That God has to pay and will pay and sin will be paid for, but he does not have to make you pay for your sin. That's mercy. And he does not make you pay for your sin because of his steadfast love. We confess as Christians our sin, not to earn his love, not to garner favor for his love, but because God is and has steadfast love for those who are his. And so we gladly say, have mercy, not because I earned it. Obviously, I'm, sin- I'm a sinner. You see, I didn't. But because you love, you love, and you love me. And that's exactly how you were when you came to Christ. Ungodly, an enemy, dead, and he loved you. There was a moment where a light bulb went off and he said, I'm a sinner. And he said, yes, you are. I'm saving you. That's mercy. And so he appeals to his mercy because of his love. You see, God's mercy flows from his love. That it is his love for you that is the foundation of why he does not give you what you deserve. Now, don't get me wrong. Your sin will be paid for. But not by you. And that's mercy. And then what David does here is he not only talks about uh, confessing his sin because God is merciful and how it flows from his abounding steadfast Love, but he then begins to talk about how, because of God's mercy and his love, there are three barriers that are broken down that are currently revealed because of the prophet Nathan between him and God. And he describes this barrier, the barrier between him and God, using three different words. In fact, because of God's mercy through confession, God breaks down these barriers. Number one, look at this in verses one and two. He breaks down your transgressions at the end of verse 1. Blot out my transgressions. The second barrier you see in verse 2. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. And then the third barrier in verse 3, he says, And cleanse me from my sin. Here's what David says God, by his mercy, does because of his love. He says in verse 1, blot out my transgressions. God is able to make it as if you had never even rebelled. That's what transgression means. It means that there was a, a barrier and you crossed it. Doesn't mean if it was for a little bit of time or accidental or on purpose, but rather that you rebelled against God's barrier or standard and God can blot out your transgression as if you never even crossed that barrier because of his mercy. 
Barrier number two, look at this. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. He says that uh, iniquity, it's as, as if we haven't twisted or, or perverted God's standard. And that's what this word iniquity means. It literally means twisted or perverted. Right? So it's as if, he says, look, it's as if like you can just blot this whole thing out. As if it never even happened. As if I did not take your role as a person of God and twist it to justify my own sin. That's what King David did. And that's what we do. And then look at this third bear. He says, oh my goodness, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Sin is a word that means like missed the mark or missed the standard. And because of God's mercy in his love, he can make it as if you had never missed the mark. Well, of course you missed the mark. You were dead. Have you ever seen a dead person hit anything right? No, right? And in this beautiful thing that David declares, man, I, I can be cleansed and I can be washed and all my transgressions can be blotted out all because of the beautiful mercy of God. And the pathway on which we find these barriers taken down in the Christian life is through the confession of sin. That was my sermon. It was nine minutes long, for the record. I know, right? There you go. Every week. That's not going to happen every week. And so here's where this leaves us. Would you be so bold as to just simply have a conversation with God? He already knows whether you're good at confession or not. Like he, <laughs> it's like when you know your kid has done something wrong and you're like, dude, just apologize, right? And they're pouting their lip. I saw you do it. <laughs> Stop being stubborn. Like that's, man. Would you be so bold as to ask the Lord, if you are good at confessing, and here's the grace in this. If you're not good at confessing, why don't you just stop and say, God, I confess. I'm not good at confessing. And you don't have to solve every problem in the next five minutes of your confession or lack thereof. But if you can have a conversation with the Lord about how you desire to confess your sin, but you're just not sure how, and welcome to our church. You're in a great place for all of us to learn and grow in this area together. Would you be so bold as to confess to God that you're just not that good at confessing? And if in that process he begins to call to mind, yeah, you're right, and here's an area I need you to work on, why don't you begin to have that conversation with them? As Lynn starts to play, let's go to a time of confessing our ability or lack thereof to confess right now. In fact, with every head bowed and every eye closed, if that's you, just block me out. I'll be talking for about 45 more seconds, but you just go ahead and have a conversation with God. If you're in here today, earlier I said that God has made a way. He has a standard for your sin that it must be paid for. And he's made a way that you don't pay for your sin. You see, the gospel is a pathway of confession. You begin as a follower of Christ by confessing 
that you've sinned, and you continue as a follower of Christ, you continue confessing your sin. Not that you lose your salvation, but that it's a continual part of your walk as a follower of Christ. But if you've never started the path by confessing your sin and believing in Jesus Christ, you've got to know that God's mercy will not be on your side. Your sin must be paid for and you will pay. But you don't have to. God knew that you would sin. And so he sent Jesus who lived a perfect life because he himself was God who came in the flesh. And he took his perfect life and he laid on Jesus' perfect life all of your transgressions, all of your iniquity, and all of your sin. That if you would confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'd be saved. That if you would confess, God, you sent Jesus to take away my sin. Would you forgive me of my sin and be my Lord and Savior? The Bible promises you'll be saved. God promises. This is his word. God promises you will be saved. So today I would ask, if you are not a follower of Christ, would you begin down the pathway of confession by confessing your sins? In fact, if that's you, it sounds something like this. You just say, dear Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I mean, he, of course he knows. He knows, he knows your sin better than you do. And you say, God, would you forgive me of my sin? He'll say, yes, that's what I do. Say, I believe that you sent Jesus to die for my sin. And he'll say, yeah, that, that's what I did. And you say, now, God, would you give me a new life? he'll say absolutely and if that's you today we're going to go to a time of singing a song I'll be standing up front Gary another one of our pastors will be standing up front and we would love to talk with you about that or if there's just something you're working through as a follower of Christ or just another question we'll be up here during this last song and then afterwards, we will close out. But let's come back next week, at least coming to the place where we have talked to God about the idea of confession and how that lands in our own life. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for being our king. We pray, God, that you would grant us, by your mercy, oh, a great and beautiful understanding of how you have designed us to deal with sin. I thank you that you deal with it, that we confess it. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to grow more in love with Jesus and more like him during this response time. It's in your name we pray. Amen.